Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. Well, like I said in the beginning of the service, we're continuing our celebration of Easter today. We're continuing our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus today. We're continuing to look for the ways that Jesus showed up for his first followers and continues to show up for us even now. Last week, we read the scripture about the empty tomb. We talked about how fear and confusion and doubt was so much a part of that experience and how chaos can seem like it has the final word on our lives and how our world seems to be defined by that chaos. And we we looked at the ways that Jesus steps into those experiences of chaos and calls us out and calls us in to a renewed experience of faith. And that's what he does with Mary, right? Like Mary comes to the empty tomb and she's scared. So she runs and tells her friends about what's happened, that the tomb is empty and that she thinks potentially that someone has stolen the body. So they come back and the two disciples, Peter and the unnamed disciple, look in the tomb and see that in fact, yes, she was telling the truth the the tomb is empty and they those two disciples leave and go back to lock themselves up in the upper room uh, where they are staying scared of the jewish authorities and their association with jesus so they grieve in the upper room and mary stays in the garden weeping and mourning the loss both of the life of the person that she loved and was following but also of the fact that someone would steal this body And while she's sitting there grieving, these two angels appear and ask her why she's grieving. And as she's explaining to them why she is scared, she turns around and sees another figure, which we know is Jesus, but she sees as the gardener. And the reason she sees this figure as a gardener is in part because she has no concept of how resurrection could be a part of this story. She is grieving the loss of her friend and loss of this body. So even being uh, within speaking distance from a person just at the edge of the tomb that she is grieving within, she cannot recognize Jesus. She asks, what has happened to the body? And she yeah, again, has absolute certainty that chaos has defined this moment all the way up until the point that this supposed gardener speaks to her. And when he speaks, Mary recognizes Jesus as her friend that she knew had died and now sees as resurrected. And Jesus offers her a picture of what this resurrection might mean and what it might mean for the world. And she goes from that experience of Jesus back to the upper room where she becomes the first evangelist, the first person to to declare the good news of resurrection. She runs to a locked upper room and tells the disciples what she has seen and what Jesus has told her. Now, you'd think that would lead all of these disciples to celebrate and begin the work that they had started with Jesus, right? Like, if Jesus is still alive, let's get back to it. But instead, we see 11 of the 12 disciples, all of them except for Thomas, continue to keep themselves locked in the upper room out of fear for some persecution they might experience at the hands of the religious authority who had been seeking out and hunting down anyone with affiliation and association with Jesus, right? They know the resurrection. They have heard it from Mary's lips, 
and they continue to keep themselves locked in an upper room. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up. Jesus, again, acknowledging the pain of the experience that these disciples have been through and the fear that they must have, Jesus appears. He steps in to that upper room. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus enters into that space and brings them peace to a moment of chaos, a moment of uncertainty, a moment where it seemed like evil had won the day. Jesus steps in and offers them peace. And what they experience is joy. And then he puts them in the place that Jesus has been through their experience of him. Jesus was sent by the Father to bring new life to the world, to prepare the world for abundance, and to redefine all of the margins of society as central to what it means to be faithful. Anybody who's been kicked to the side or abused or neglected is now brought to the center of creation. Jesus came um, to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind so that all might have renewed life. And so Jesus, being sent from God for this purpose, now pivots the attention and the power to the disciples and says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, and then breathes into these followers the Spirit of God, which has been in Jesus this whole time. Now, this might call our memories back to the first chapters of Genesis, when God molds together clay with the intention that these uh, these bodies might one day bring um, sustenance and sustainability to creation, which God had named as good, right? He molds these figures from the dust of the earth and breathes into them the gift of life. And with that gift of life, they begin to nurture and nourish the world as it's meant to be. And so Jesus, coming, you know, However many hundreds or thousands or whatever years later, Jesus comes to these 12 disciples and again breathes the breath of God into these stagnant, terrified, broken men and women who were gathered in this upper room, telling them that they now have this power to build up, to create, and to forgive, and to offer grace, and love, and mercy, to offer a new way of living in the world. These people who had once been followers are now called to a transformed life of leadership, guiding the next generation to be faithful to this task of abundance and sustenance, of, uh, of, of guiding all of the world into to this joyful experience of renewed life. So that's the context that we get to Thomas, who for some reason we call Doubting Thomas, and I will be frustrated about that every time we read this passage, because Thomas, Thomas has been one of the most steadfast um, disciples throughout the, the gospel narrative in the book of John. Right? It's, it's Thomas who, when Lazarus has died and Jesus decides that he needs to go to attend to his friend and to be there for his, his friends, Mary and Martha, who are grieving the loss 
of their brother. He, um, he, Jesus decides he needs to go back to be with them. And all the other disciples are um, express their concern that the religious authority want to stone Jesus to death. But Thomas doesn't express concern. Instead, what he does is he expresses his absolute devotion to Jesus. And he says, all right, we'll go. We will follow you even unto death if that's what it takes. And then later when Jesus, just before he's um, being arrested, he's having his last conversations with his disciples and he explains to them that he's going to have to die and that he's going to come back and they should all know the path to be able to get to this renewed vision of creation and all this stuff. Thomas sort of interrupts that story and says, well, Jesus, you got to show us the path. We want to be next to you. Show me the way. And Jesus responds cryptically saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So you can sort of imagine Thomas being like, maybe confused, but like, okay, like, I guess that's fair enough. I'll stay close to you then, I suppose. And then Jesus dies, and most of the disciples lock themselves in the upper room, but Thomas is off doing his own thing. And I like to think that Thomas may have been trying to care for the poor on his own, you know, trying to do the work that he had been doing with Jesus during his whole life. And he just happened to be away from the upper room because he was trying to do what he could to maintain his closeness with Jesus by continuing in the work that he'd been called to. So when Jesus shows up to the upper room with the other disciples who'd lock themselves away out of fear, Thomas is doing something else. And so when he comes back and hears this account, right, that Jesus showed up, and not only that Jesus showed up, but that Jesus gave them this breath of life to be renewed and to continue on the work that Jesus had started— you can imagine why Thomas came in, not doubting Jesus, but instead doubting the testimony of these people who claim a renewed life, who claim to have received the Holy Spirit, who claim to have um, been incorporated into this vision, but who keep themselves locked away. So you can sort of wrap your head around why Jesus would be like, listen, until I actually see Jesus and like see the wounds and touch them, there's no way I'm going to believe this. And it's not out of doubt in Jesus, but out of some sense of doubt in his companions. And it makes me wonder about the ways that I keep myself locked away. And I wonder sometimes, as as much as we proclaim the idea of renewed life, of abundance, of hope, of joy. Do I embody those things or do I just talk about them? And as a church, do we lock our faithful selves away in upper rooms and then mimic the community around us as soon as we leave so as to not draw attention to ourselves? so that we might not experience the wrath of our version of Rome or of the religious elite. Like, do we talk about hope and faith and trust and abundance in spaces like this, 
and in moments like this. And then as soon as this time comes to an end and we say amen, do we carry that hope with us into the world? Do we live abundantly in the world, sharing what we have so that the world might be transformed? Or do we conform to the norms of our community that cry out in division and animosity and anger and hatred? Like, if someone spoke to any one of us and we started talking about good news of resurrection, if someone asked if you started talking about good news of resurrection, would they trust the resurrection in the way that you interact with them? Or would they potentially say, well, until I get to see you with my own eyes, I don't know that I believe all this because I don't see evidence of it. In many ways, that's the challenge of being followers of Jesus, right? Because there is no tangible nation state of Christianity as much as some nations have tried to claim it. Because what it means to be devoted to the kingdom of God isn't that we're devoted to a king with might and power and strength that's wielded over others. When we talk about being in this kingdom, we talk about an intentional relationship and we talk about an intentional flattening of all hierarchies, which for people who've experienced power and privilege, those of us who um, have attention on us on a regular basis, it can feel like well, you know, it's said a lot. For people with power, equality feels like oppression. And I think to some extent that's true. So some of us, if we're honest, really like the hierarchy. We really like feeling important, more important than other people. But for those of us who've experienced nothing but pain and neglect and hardship, it's, I think, easier to talk about hope and expectation but in order for the kingdom of God to be real, it means that we lift up those that have been pushed down and we climb down the ladder in order to be in an abundance of community. And sometimes that means throwing the ladder itself out. In order to live as reflections of the kingdom of God, it means that we devote ourselves to the greatest commandments that Jesus offered to us, to love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It means that we love one another just as Christ loved us. It's through that expression of love that people will come to know Jesus at all. That is what scripture tells us. And as we know, no one gets to the Father except through Christ, and no one really comes to know Christ except by the expression of God's love made known through the followers of Christ. You see, this is why it's so important for us to not live lives that are bifurcated with values that contradict one another. If we are to be people of faith, it means that we have to live in certain trust and hope that the world can be better than what it is now. And not only that we hope it can be better than what it is now, but that we have devoted our lives to making it happen, 
to following in Jesus's footsteps, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to bring uh, to the recovering of sight to the blind and to eliminate all oppression in the world. That's what it means to be people of faith. And we can only do that with joy if we put our whole trust in Christ and live consistently in that way so that it can become true that for those who have not seen Christ, they might have faith because the people of faith have embodied what it means to be Christ-like. Thomas's doubt had nothing to do with Jesus or a lack of trust in Jesus's power. Thomas's doubt had everything to do with a disconnect among his own community, his own friends, the way that they were living their life and what they proclaim to believe. So drawing those two things together consistently might help the world to trust that the resurrection is true and is real. And with that trust, we might be able to look further on the horizon with hope. And with the horizon that's coming closer to us, we might be able to see little glimpses and glimmers of the kingdom in all that we do. Beyond all of that, the truth is that if you find yourself grieving and scared, Jesus will show up for you there. If you find yourself doubtful, confused, filled with questions, Jesus will arrive to you there. If you feel overwhelmed by guilt and shame, Jesus will arrive for you there. Jesus consistently shows up for us offering us new hope, a fresh perspective, and a clear calling in every category. Mary experienced it in her grief. The disciples experienced it in their fear. Thomas experienced it in his doubt, and Peter experiences it in his guilt and shame. Every category of faith, Jesus shows up in exactly the right way. So for you, wherever you may be, I trust that Jesus will show up for you. And it will become our work together to live as reflections of Jesus' presence more and more consistently, day by day by day, so that the rest of the world might come to trust that the worst things are never the last things. And there is always something on the horizon for us to look to and to hope for. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.